Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 37, recorded on January 21st, 2018. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected with you, and man, do we have a lot to cover this week. Let's start out with an open source classic. It's really getting to be a fine vintage, too. Version 3.0 of the Wine Project is out. Yeah, after a year of development and 6,000 changes, there's a lot new in here, like Direct3D 10 and 11 support, and uh, Android stuff as well. But in all honesty, as huge as this is, I haven't used Wine for years. Is it something you really use regularly still? From time to time, and I may even more. I mean, just for context, Wine was originally released on July 4th, 1993. And yes, that is 24 years ago. So it's just amazing to see them shipping 3.0 24 years ago. Talk about sticking with it. But some of the things I've seen prop up online make me think I may be taking another look at Wine. So version 3.0 supports Direct 3D 10 and 11. There is an improved Direct Write and Direct 2D support, which with that also brings support potentially for Adobe Photoshop CS 2018. I suppose that is quite big. But then again, every time I've ever used Wine, it's kind of, it's never quite right, is it? If you're talking about games, perhaps, but if you're talking about um, productivity applications, you're talking about your one-off uh, executables that you need to do your job from time to time. I actually have found it to be pretty, I, actually, I won't even say pretty. When it does work, it's remarkable. It, it is remarkable. So yeah, it doesn't do everything. But what it does do, I, it blows me away now. And I'm saying this trying like a, recently, I was just going through this whole spat of Windows applications that, uh, there, uh, for example, my Garmin navigation unit, which is a Windows only application update, I was able to run that under Wine recently. And that's even communicating over the internet and with a USB device. <laughs> I was very, very appreciative of that. Yeah, something like that you don't really want to be installing Windows for. But I think if you're spending a, a lot of time in something like Photoshop, does it really make sense to do it in Linux or does it make more sense to just dual boot? It's certainly what I would do. Yeah, I suppose so. So what do you think of the Android graphics driver? Yeah, now that is interesting. Although, as far as I know, that is only the x86 version of Android. So that is fairly limited in the number of devices that it supports. But it does represent a kind of step into the present. I was going to say future, but it's more the present, really, that you have to kind of support Android these days. And along those lines, this is also the version that officially supports Vulkan. Yeah, and that means that any games that are using Vulkan are going to work much better in Wine, which is good news. I suppose like it, that's the main real use of this, isn't it? People who want to stick to Linux, but they really want to play some games that are just not available. Speaking of those Android users, those of you that have bought something from OnePlus in the, the last few months may need to take a look at your credit card statement. Yeah, now I did buy a OnePlus phone not all that long ago, but thankfully I bought that off Gumtree, which is like your Craigslist, so no problem there. But yeah, this is the latest in a line of bad news coming from OnePlus, isn't it? Yeah. So if you put your credit card info in, uh, in the last, well, they say between mid-November and January 11th, 2018, so it could be before that, you never know, then your info was compromised. So that really just does not look good for them. We had the spyware stuff, the, um, the backdoors, whatever. Now this, 
it's made me lose all confidence in OnePlus, I must say. It sounds like the root cause was a malicious script that was operating intermittently, capturing and sending data directly from the user's browser to the hackers. So it was probably something that was compromised on their website would be a safe assumption, but that is an assumption. And there are some caveats. Uh, if you bought something and paid via a saved credit card, something that you saved to your profile, you're not affected. And if you paid via the credit card via PayPal, you're not affected. And if you just paid via straight PayPal, you're not affected. So it seems it was something that was actively monitoring input on the user and then capturing that data. Well, this is what OnePlus says, but how do we know that that is necessarily the truth? That might be what they think, but if someone was able to take control of a server that allowed them to capture that data, who knows what other data is being captured as well? And you would have thought probably the PayPal stuff's okay, but saved credit card information, mm, I would be concerned, put it that way, if I had my credit card in hand. Hang on, I'm just thinking, I think I do have... <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, that was a long time ago, so no, I'm okay, hopefully. I think that card's expired now. Oh, good. <laughs> you never know, though. It does give you pause, doesn't it? Mm. I think you're probably okay, Joe, just because it, if I'm reading between the lines, if I put my TechSnap hat on and my TechSnap goggles, what I'm reading here is that it was a website JavaScript vulnerability or something that the that was inserted on their web page and it was doing like a key logging. So the reason why save credit cards are safe is because it wasn't their database that was breached. It was the actual action of users typing in their credit card that was captured. And so if you went via a method where you didn't type in your credit card, well, they may have captured other things on the site, but they didn't capture your credit card. Yeah, but again, if they were able to inject JavaScript into that page, then who knows what else they were able to do. But I think you're probably right, but I'm still skeptical of them because they, they it's still quite vague what oneplus is saying about it they're saying mid-november they don't know exactly when it was compromised and therefore they don't know exactly what happened they haven't had time really to go through all the logs and work out exactly to what extent they were compromised so uh, I, i'm just thinking for my next phone now i don't know because what else is there that's got a nice big screen mm. and is hackable and has got first-class lineage support, I really don't know. And also, crucially, isn't ridiculously expensive. That's the main thing. Yeah, you do wonder when something like this happens, what would the reaction be if this was Motorola or Samsung or the Pixel phone, when people ordered the Pixel phone or the iPhone? Imagine the outrage if this was the iPhone. And OnePlus says that they cannot apologize enough for letting something like this happen and that they are eternally grateful to have such a vigilant and informed community and it pains to let you down. They say they've made contact or are attempting to make contact with all of the affected customers, which gives the implication that they seem to know exactly which customers were impacted by this. Perhaps they know which vulnerability was on their website and when they patched it and which orders took place during that window. And all measures, they say are in place to help prevent such incidents from happening in the future. Well, the easiest way to stop it happening in the future is to not buy anything from them again, which is what I will do, unfortunately. Well, speaking of no longer being a customer, at least if all of the news headlines are to be believed, Google will no longer be using Ubuntu. Yeah, so this is their internal, not quite a distro that runs on some of the workstations within the company, alongside macOS and Windows and Chrome OS on some of the others. And it was originally Gubuntu, which was based on Ubuntu. And now they're switching to Debian testing for the base of the distro, which isn't a huge change, is it, in reality? 
Well, what's interesting, Joe, is all of this is coming out of a lightning talk at DebConf 17. And there's a couple other details that were dropped in there, including Debian's been pretty heavily used at Google for a while now in different areas. And Google's been a longtime strong Debian supporter. In 2017, Debian credited Google for making their annual conference even possible in the first place. So there's been a pretty tight relationship there. And if you're basing an OS off of a base Linux distro, it does make a lot of sense, especially if you want rolling, to base it off Debian testing. Do you think that's what this boils down to, that they wanted something rolling rather than the Ubuntu snapshot way of doing it? I do, especially if you want your own rolling distribution. See, that's what this is about, is Google wants their own rolling distribution. Google takes each Debian testing package, rebuilds it, tests it, and then files and fixes bugs. And once all of those are resolved, it integrates it into its own G-Linux release candidate, which is what they're calling it now. And then that goes out into their own repos. And Google's building a real solution here, something that works for an entire in-house automation system. The new Linux images are automatically built from compressed tar format archives, and then these images are then placed on an HTTPS server, which the remote workers can access when they're in the Google complex or when they're working remote. And these are running Debian pre-seed files that automate portions of the host installation. So you can set down a laptop on the Google network, and the installation is fired up via network boot, uh, uses Puppet to integrate all of the configuration management and set up all of the update paths and all of the source files. And according to different news reports, this entire thing can be done in 30 minutes. You take a bare laptop, you hook it into the network, and you can blast G-Linux or blast Gubuntu on there, whichever one you want. They're both still available. And the whole thing's ready to go in 30 minutes, managed by Puppet. And when you look at their infrastructure, when they're rebuilding individual packages already, maintaining their own repos, doing pixie boot network imaging, why not just create your own distro based off Debian at that point? That's just the next logical step. So you're not going in for these conspiracy theories that they are hedging against Ubuntu either going away or making more significant changes then? Hmm. I hadn't heard that. I mean, it would make sense too. That just seems like another, that just seems like another benefit of doing this. And if you're going to be rebasing everybody's desktop on GNOME anyways, this is the time to make a change like this. Yeah, that's true, I suppose. If you're going to have to deal with major changes either way, then why not go back to the source it, rather than being something that's based off something that's based off Debian? Why not just base it off Debian in the first place? Control your own destiny. That's perfectly viable for large corporations like Google. For smaller businesses like Jupiter Broadcasting, I appreciate the curation and the maintenance and the care. And so it's just different solutions for different sized businesses. I'm surprised this hasn't happened already in some ways. I'm kind of tempted to just play around with and try it myself. <laughs> yeah, I'd quite like to try it out on my own systems, but unfortunately, it's not a distro, is it? You almost, in a way, have to respect the fact that this thing's never leaked, at least as far as I've seen. I've never seen an ISO available for download. They have gone to significant extents to prevent this thing from showing up in the public. Oh, well, here's hoping. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. Learn to build your own Linux distribution from the fundamentals all the way up to the things in the cloud that make you all the money and look good on the resume. Self-paced, in-depth video courses on every Linux cloud and DevOps topic. You get hands-on scenario-based labs that give you real experience. So that way, not only do you test better because you've done it, but when you go to work in production, you've done it before. It's not your first time in production. That's always a good thing. And if you ever get stuck when you're working on any of the Linux Academy material, they have real-time human beings 
ready to help you. And if life's busy, I understand they have a course schedule. You set a time frame. It helps you stick to it and set learning goals. And they have practice exams to help you get ready for the big test, flashcards forked by the community, and a community stacked full of Jupiter Broadcasting members. And they also have downloadable comprehensive study guides and lesson audio that you can listen to offline. And if you have a connection, maybe you're commuting on the bus or in the tube, well, they have iOS and Android apps as well. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. Go there to support the show and sign up for a free seven-day trial. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. Okay, so Meltdown Inspector, the story that just will not go away. Let's start with an update from Greg KH about where we are with the kernel and the question of, is my machine runnable? Well, it's very straightforward. You just grep a certain directory and it tells you whether you're vulnerable or not. Or does it? <laughs> yeah, that does depend on your kernel. And we'll have a link in the show notes. Just go to litxactionnews.com slash 37 to get this link. And it's pretty neat. It just lists out all of the potential things that your CPU could be vulnerable for. I like this a lot because it just gives you a clear understanding unless you're not running a current kernel. Then it's, uh, well, then you don't get new things. Well, yeah, if you run in a distro kernel, like we are with Ubuntu, for example, then this just doesn't work. Even though they have patched against Meltdown, there's not really this easy way to know that. Right. There is an elegance to how simple this is. This doesn't seem like a feature that would be impossible for the distro maintainers to backport, though. It's funny the tone that Greg's maintained throughout all this. He's been very down on distro kernels, hasn't he? Yeah. In fact, there's a paragraph that uh, I liked quite a bit. He says some, quote-unquote, Enterprise distributions did not backport the changes for this reporting. So if you're running one of those types of kernels, go bug the vendor to fix that. You really want a unified way of knowing the state of your system. Which kind of makes sense. If you're working directly on the kernel, then you want people to use that version of it. You don't want people to be using something that's being changed. I think when it comes to Meltdown Inspector, the kernel team really wants a unified way for everybody to manage this. He goes as far as to say, if your kernel doesn't have the sysfs directory or files, then there's obviously a problem and you need to upgrade your kernel. And I think the, the emphasis is we can't really fully address this unless everybody's on the same page. Well, yeah, that's true. Although isn't the point of distros that they are different from each other. There is something that differentiates them from the other distros and you take something like Ubuntu, they've added value to the generic kernel, haven't they? I suppose the market's already sort of bared this out, right? Well, yeah, so it would seem. Although Red Hat's having a bit of a back and forth, depending on which particular lens you look at this situation, they are doing an about face, trying to save face and blame everything on Intel, or depending on who you ask, they're taking a unified approach to make sure everything is just exactly how the users expect it and we're waiting for things to come together upstream. Just depends on which lens you put on that day. Yeah, this is specifically this microcode update, which has come directly from Intel. And that is to mitigate against the Spectre side of things rather than Meltdown. And Intel released this, and I've patched a couple of my machines with it, and it's worked fine. But there have been reports of random reboots and machines that won't boot at all. And Red Hat originally pushed it out, and then they pulled it because it made sense to do that. It wasn't working properly. And people have kind of come down on them saying that, oh, they just want to offload the responsibility, which 
can you really blame them? It's this black box binary that just gets pushed out by Intel and you just have to trust that it's going to do what it's supposed to do. Yeah, it's actually encrypted and signed. So they they can't even like pull it apart and kind of deduce what it does. Um, And so Red Hat in a statement said, the microcode was supplied to us and it did not cover all of the microprocessors that our customers possibly could use. It appears subsequently that there may have also been two versions that could have some regressions We're looking at providing our customers with a consistent experience. It's very difficult for us to say in this case, but applying this package and two other cases, you can't just say talk to somebody else or in a third case, talk to another or fourth party. So what they're doing is they've decided to wait until there was a complete set of microcodes available and then wait for the community project to catch up. And then once everything's all there and tested and known to work well, they're going to revisit it, which I think is probably Red Hat for saying, then they'll republish it again. Until then, Red Hat is recommending that customers apply Spectre and Meltdown-related patches um, and then contact their CPU vendors for the firmware updates specifically, like the microcode. This is such a delicate balancing act, isn't it, between security and stability. You kind of have to weigh up the risk. And yes, there is this serious vulnerability, but what are the chances of it actually being exploited at this stage? There's there's more and more proof of concepts coming out as each day goes by, but do you sacrifice stability and performance and the fact that you might break things to mitigate against something that is just kind of theoretical? So I can see why they've taken this more conservative approach to patching. Seems pretty reasonable to me. It's a risk, but you got to weigh that against making your machine crash. And I think that's also why I like the way Canonical's approaching this. Uh, This week, they published candidate Ubuntu kernels that provide mitigations for Spectre variants 1 and 2, which the fact that they even have a potential mitigation to variant 2 of Spectre, I'm pretty impressed with. But they're not shipping it. They're not saying it's done yet. They've released candidate kernels for 17.10, 16.04, and 14.04. Yeah, which is a very nice approach, isn't it? It means if you want to do on-premises testing... And then you can do it before you deploy it to all of your workloads out there. Rather than just pushing it out and letting all the users test it for you, it's it's available for those who want it and want to test it and really are prioritizing security. And it looks like that testing is almost complete now. And hopefully we will see this around about the time people are listening to this episode. Yeah, and you should also see a corresponding Intel microcode update for many of the Intel CPUs, and eventually an AMD64 microcode update as well. And it's the combination of the software updates and the microcode updates together that actually mitigate most of the vulnerabilities as we know it. Or do they, Joe? Well, that's the thing. Skyfallattack.com has cropped up, and it says Skyfall and Solace. Not to be confused with Solus, of course. Ike's uh, delighted by this name. And it says more vulnerabilities in modern computers. And it's basically saying that this is just the beginning, Meltdown Inspector, and there's going to be more coming out. And there's uh, something under embargo that we're going to publish soon. So it's all very speculative, but it's all very worrying at the same time. I feel bad for Ike. That's a lot of name collision. I guess the implication is is that Skyfall and Solus are two speculative attacks based on the works highlighted in Meltdown Inspector, but the full details are completely under an embargo, but will be published soon. So watch this space, the website says, which is very teasy and um, obviously trying to generate hype. Yeah, and can you really trust anyone who doesn't specify a background color 
on their website. <laughs> Who can you trust then, Joe? Who can yeah. you trust? I say that because it looks gray with my theme. If people don't specify white as a background color, then I know that they are lazy web devs. But there we go. You are a true XFCE user to the core, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it's a long story, but it's to do with my Firefox profile that I never fixed, and I probably should fix it. But I've I've left it so that it does point that out to me who's uh, who's being lazy. But someone who has not been lazy are the team behind NHS Ubuntu, and then they changed it to NHOS. This was an Ubuntu based distro that was very much aimed at the National Health Service here in the UK. And this gained a lot of attention after the huge ransomware attack last year that crippled a lot of the NHS infrastructure. And some people were hopeful that this would happen and that the NHS might change over to Linux, but I was always very skeptical. And I was always assuming that they were going to be shut down because of the NHS trademark, which they are very, very protective about. And sure enough, that has happened now. Yeah, that's a bit of a shame. The volunteer force behind NHOS wanted NHS Ubuntu to replace the current smart card verification system that was running on Windows and ultimately uh, have the operating system replace Windows on the desktop as well. And they went through trademark disputes. They made adjustments based on what they thought they needed to. And they got to the end of it. And, well, they did what sort of reads as a as a rage quit, but a bit understandable when you look in the context they feel like they were leveraged to negotiate with Microsoft. And that's why they got some attention, but no official support. They never really felt like they were wanted other than wanted to get a better deal from Microsoft. We've seen that kind of negotiating tactic a lot where uh, a government or a company gets locked into Microsoft and they don't really have an option to leave Microsoft, but they will flirt or threaten to flirt with switching to LibreOffice and, you know, if you don't give us a great deal, we're going to switch to LibreOffice. And it seems like it's sort of a negotiating tactic when there's no real sincerity behind it. Now, you see, I'm just not having that at all. It's Marcus Bohr, who was the co-founder of this. He said that they'd used it as a negotiating tactic and everything. But I just think in reality, it was just never going to happen. And they they almost had some meetings with some higher-ups in the IT department of the NHS, but I just think that it was just a complete pipe dream of them to think that they were ever going to break the monopoly stranglehold that Microsoft has over the NHS, as they have over so many enterprises all over the world. Yeah, fair enough. People have uh, established workflows, and uh, they got a job to get done. Yeah, and changing the infrastructure of something as huge as the NHS is not something that happens quickly, if at all, essentially. There's still tons of machines running XP, even now, in the NHS. And so you can't expect them to seriously consider changing major infrastructure over to Linux. It would be great if it would happen, and I, I would be all for it, but sometimes you just have to be a bit realistic with these things. That's why I follow stories out of Barcelona with so much interest, is how does the grand experiment work out? And uh, we'll check back in on stories like that and many other stories in Linux and the open source world. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes every single week. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. And please consider supporting the entire network and giving us runways for future projects and much more. Go to patreon.com slash jupitersignal. 
We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later. Thank you.